Please listen carefully. Welcome back to another episode of the Extra Buttery Podcast. This time on the show, we've got a lineup of uh, some of the latest news from around the movie and TV industries. And we're very excited to bring you our first special guest to the show, friend of ours from Jason and my days in the journalism program at Carleton University, Kate Wilkinson, will be joining us uh, later on in the show. But uh, to kick things off, we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, some new shows on Amazon, some news from the upcoming Bond film, first news we've heard of the start date for the next Avatar film, and a little bit about uh, Joss Whedon's new Batgirl film that he'll be bringing to the DC Extended Universe and uh, who might be playing the lead role, as well as a little bit of talk about the upcoming Michael Mann film about Enzo Ferrari and uh, the changing casting that's being planned for that film. And then uh, we'll close things out with uh, a little bit of discussion about uh, some of our recent watching history, and uh, I think Jason's going to be uh, questioning some of my <laughs> ratings on uh, Letterbox.com. <laughs> but coming to you from Toronto, my name is Robert Snow, and joining me from Vancouver is my co-host Jason Chen. Hey, Jason, how's it going? Good. How about you? Ah, I'm doing all right. Um, so you were—you've uh, been keeping a close eye on Amazon lately. At the, well, we were talking in a recent episode about uh, what we should really call uh, companies like Netflix and Amazon because they're really moving beyond uh, distribution networks and into full-on studios now. Yeah, that's true. So I think the term we used was alternative studios, but I, I feel like we could come up with a way better name. That'll, that'll come, I'm sure. But uh, I, the biggest news is two things. So. Nicholas Reffin Winding, who did Drive, which was one of my favorite Ryan Gosling films of all time, mm-hmm. um, has cast Miles Teller in a series, in a 10 episode series called Too Old to Die Young. And the other thing is, Amazon is producing their own movie, this time with Brie Larson. It's based on a true story. Um, a woman called Victoria Woodhull, who was the first woman to run for the president of the United States in 1872 and uh yeah it's really interesting that amazon is really really a full court press from amazon to produce all sorts of different shows and different uh movies i'm exactly how big and what kind of budget we're looking at i'm not sure because ref and winding has always worked with a pretty small budget and this film with amazon studios with brie larson there i think there's some risk to it um, but uh, I don't know. I, I think it should be a really, really interesting time for Amazon. I mean, this is their big foray into creating their own content. Yeah, because they're really they're up against uh, Netflix as their their major competitor, and Net- Netflix has been getting bolder and bolder in recent year recent months. In fact, like uh, the, it seems like every time you log on to the uh, the platform now. There's there's some new surprising thing. Uh, I think even just as recently as this past weekend, I came across this uh, really cool documentary series about uh, classic movie directors who contributed to the war effort in World War II, and that was oh that's cool. Yeah, it was, it's called Five Came Back, and it's just it's a three part documentary series. And oh yeah, yeah, and this, I had no yeah. idea it was even in production, but it popped up on Netflix, and uh, so I think uh, Amazon has got um, you know they're they're probably looking at that ecosystem, and thinking to themselves, hey, we gotta we've got to punch just as hard as Netflix is on this front. Yeah, I'm I'm curious to see how Nicholas Winding Refn adapts to to the Amazon experience. We know that he um, he has worked on the, as you said, like pretty small budgets before. Uh, kind of grinding out these these very artsy, very European uh, themed yeah, movies. Yeah, definitely. And uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully, the Amazon experience is kind of a is he finds that kind of welcoming because uh, I've I've always been curious about what he calls uh, his filmmaking from the future as he uh, <laughs> as he described the neon demon you know he he's uh, uh, he's always positioned himself as being a guy who's trying to make movies as if he's a guy working five years from now all these crazy uh, european artists man yeah yeah so uh um so what do we do we know anything about the the miles teller series that he's working on do we have any like uh, plot outlines right now uh i don't think so but uh it's it's I know it's 10 uh, 10 episodes and it's going to be a crime series 
and it's going to be executively produced by Teller and Refn Winding. It is written by Ed Brubaker, who I believe is a comic book writer, and he also wrote episodes for uh, HBO's Westworld. Oh, cool. Yeah, so there's lots of great talent in the mix there. Yeah, exactly. So this is interesting. Uh, Miles Teller is a very... His career so far is pretty interesting. I think in he's kind of like Colin Farrell in the sense that he plays really good kind of off-the-wall um, niche characters. He's not a leading man by by any stretch. I think Fantastic Four kind of nailed that. Mm, yeah, yeah, but it's but he seems to be kind of coming to that uh, that point in his career a little bit sooner than Farrell did. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it might be it might be just be a lack of opportunity um, because from right here, Miles Teller is kind of difficult to work with. Yeah, there was that uh, was it a GQ piece about him where they they kind of tried to make this they tried to like get out ahead of the story and uh, yeah frame, he tries to frame, sound cool yeah they tried to frame him as like being a dick as if like that was cool but he just comes off as douchey he doesn't come off like cool or anything like that yeah i remember there was some controversy about that profile because he was trying to make it sound like he was trying to change the story after it came out or or something but setting aside Amazon for a second, uh, let's jump into this latest story about the upcoming 25th Bond film. Yeah, it appears Daniel Craig is returning. A lot of people have joked that Daniel Craig is only doing this for the money, which I guess is fair. But the other wrinkle is that Barbara Broccoli was the the main person who produced the Othello Broadway play that he starred in. And apparently he loved it and it got pretty good reviews. And... I think she might have produced this Othello production just to grease the wheels a little bit and, you know, maybe persuade Daniel Craig to come back as Bond. Because right now, i kind of in agreement that there's no heir apparent to the Bond throne. Like, I can't think of anyone who could really take on that role right away. Because, um, I mean, there there's always names being knocked around, but uh, but yeah, nobody nobody's super definitive. And... All, all the stuff that came out of the Spectre press tour, you know, it it was a lot of people just kind of dogpiling on Craig for either, you know, they were trying to get him to commit to the next film, uh, you know, right right as he'd finished the previous one, and uh, and he was like creatively drained, and um, he gave all of the he gave all all these press clips that uh, made it sound like he hated the, he hated playing the character and all this stuff. Creatively drained is is a funny way to put it because there was nothing creative about Spectre at all. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> yeah. Nothing um, about it was creative. But he, yeah, so he, that, that was kind of the, the impression he was giving, but so I can see why like Barbara Broccoli would kind of look at that situation and be like, what can I, what can I do to, to make him feel a little bit better and give him, give him like something to, to focus on while we gear up for the next Bond film. He's such a curmudgeon sometimes, you know? Like, he's always this, I hate this and I hate that. And then you're like, oh, I'm going to have that much money to play Bond? Okay. <laughs> I think yeah, he's in a bit of, he's kind of in that phase of his career. He's a little bit like Robert Downey Jr. in the sense that, um, you know, they have this this landmark character that they're responsible for and the the fans want want to see more of it just because, you know, they love that portrayal, but uh, sometimes you have to question why the why the actor is actually in it, and um, in da- in Danny Junior's case with the with the Iron Man character, he's really tr- just trying to build up a lot of capital to finance his own production company. And I wonder whether Craig has got something like that in the works as well. Like maybe he's thinking to himself, he can <laughs> he can get a he can get a production company off the ground, and maybe even consider directing or something in in the next five or ten years. Maybe. I thought actually the funniest part of the story was um, someone had, I guess, asked Barbara Broccoli what she thought of Tom Hiddleston as potentially the next Bond. And she said, quote unquote, he's too smug. (laughs) I thought that was so spot on and so accurate and so funny because I do find Tom Hiddleston rather smug. I don't think he can play a good Bond at all. Well, I mean, he he had been uh, in that AMC. Was it an AMC show, The Night Manager, based on the John le Carré novel? And everyone was was looking at that. They're like, "Oh wow, Tom Hiddleston can play a spy." But the the character he plays in the Night Manager is not a Bond. Yeah, he's not this kind of um, this suave. It's not a not the same character. It's kind of like how Smiley from Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy would not be a good Bond. <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> incredibly different. Yeah, at this point, I 
can't see anything say, suggesting that, that Craig will just flip the table and, and uh, run away from this. This may very well be his last time in the role, but um, if that's the case, if that's the case, then I hope that the writers they've got on board will uh, will kind of draft some sort of suitable conclusion, even though it seemed like Spectre did a lot of work to try to put a... Uh, put an ending on the arc that had started with Casino Royale. The one pitfall, too, is, and I kind of felt the same way about Skyfall, is that this is a land, or not a landmark film, but this is an anniversary film. It'll be his 25th film, right? Daniel Craig's bond since Quantum of Solace kind of has been quite self-referential and kind of done a lot of Easter eggs and nudged its own history or given nudges to its own history quite a bit. And I hope they don't go overboard with this 25th film. Yeah, I mean, they, they got a lot of that out of their system with um, uh, with the 50th anniversary of the series as a whole, I think. You hope so. You hope so, but uh, the, you you know that the that the Broccolis are going to uh, try to play up that side of it for marketing purposes. That's uh, that's just good, good business sense. Of course, they have to. Speaking of good business sense, Avatar 2 has been greenlit, hasn't it? It has, yeah. All we have on this front right now is uh, just um, so, some interview material with uh, Sigourney Weaver. I believe uh, uh, someone caught up with her at the red carpet for another project, and she revealed that she's planning to uh, to start production on this uh, in the fall of this year. That would sort of line up with um, what we have in terms of the, the most recent uh, release date for Avatar 2, which uh, was pushed back to 2019. How long did it take for them to make the first one? Uh, a number of years. They they uh, because uh, Cameron loves to build up his uh, pretty little sandbox world, and uh, you know <laughs> nothing. <laughs> yeah, you know he he just he invests so much time and money into creating this this perfect little place where he controls everything. Um, you know that that just takes a lot of time to for the visual artists to actually create. Right, and wasn't like the thing about Avatar like the first time he had introduced some revolutionary 3d technology or something like that oh yeah because the first the first avatar was right on the bleeding edge of the uh that three 3d movie revolution like the era of 3d movies that we're still kind of living in uh was it should just die the 3d era should just die i mean it, it's it's lost a lot of momentum i would say in the past year or two like you, you're seeing fewer and fewer movies uh with 3d screenings at at multiplexes it um, because they suck yeah it's, it's just not generating like people don't get excited about it and the tech in, in most part in most ways the uh the tech really doesn't impress in the way that it did back in when avatar came out and also it adds nothing to the story like just because a film with 3d is doesn't make it any good sometimes it even makes it worse no but but i mean unfortunately uh, cameron belongs to this small school of directors which also includes people like uh, peter jackson and uh, uh george lucas too but even though he doesn't make movies anymore where like they put all of their faith in some fancy new tech and they convince themselves that the tech is enhancing the storytelling. Um, but it really doesn't bear it. It doesn't bear itself out with the audiences. I don't think. Yeah. So avatar two, it has to be careful that it needs a really strong story to work because the story wasn't obviously not the best aspect of the first avatar movie. In fact, I thought the story was probably the weakest. Oh yeah. Part. That's, that's always been the, the week, like the, the part of that first film that gets criticized the most and Sigourney Weaver in her in her interview clip said that she she loves the scripts you know she she was talking it up as if they were totally fantastic well, now of course she's gonna you say know, that. of course she's you know con- contractual obligations and all of that um uh, but the but this this film this film doesn't benefit from the same kind of uh, excitement value as the first one uh, in the sense that like you know it's hitting in a, at a point uh, pretty much like 10 years after the first one when everyone's al- already knows what, what to expect from a 3D film, from a film with uh, $300 million worth of, of effects budget. Uh, so it's, to your point, like the, the scripts have better uh, really improve on the first one to hold audiences because Cameron is just trying to get five films out of this now. He's apparently trying to shoot uh, at least a, a bunch of these ones back to back to back. And uh, that well, it'll help save money that way too. It'll, it'll save money, but like uh, he's going to want to, he's going to hope that each one still makes like a billion dollars to make back the, what's probably a huge <laughs> investment. Yeah. I mean, I, to be fair to Cameron, he did do a, like one of the best jobs ever with Terminator 2. 
Oh yeah. So maybe yeah. maybe there's some hope for the sequel. I mean, I didn't like Avatar at all, so I'm not too keen. But uh, I mean, it, we'll see where it goes. It's a very interesting project for sure. It's going to be one of those things. Like, is it going to spawn the the massive shared universe that Cameron is hoping for, uh, with all the tie-ins, or is it going to uh, is the bubble finally going to burst on the quote-unquote king of the world? Uh, label that uh, that he <laughs> he earned all those years ago. Speaking of new projects, what about Joss Whedon and his new Batgirl adventure? Huh, that's pretty funny. So he does the Avengers, didn't turn out so well for him, on I think a personal level, and then he basically crosses the parking lot and goes to DC. It it is a little bit of an odd choice. I mean, I I get that he feels comfortable in the comic book world. Like, I mean, he uh, that's all that's always been his thing. But yeah. if we're talking about if we're talking about making movies with um, uh, creative control being the issue, and you know he he felt that he was too boxed in with the MCU, I don't think he's making that good of a trade for the DCEU. Yeah, he has to answer to Zack Snyder now. <laughs> yeah, if anything, the DCEU is has been even more poorly managed than uh, than the MCU, and. Or there, you know, there's more tensions behind the scenes or something because you know, just look what what we've gotten so far. We'll find out with Wonder Woman too. Yeah, so I'm I'm not sure what kind of what inspired this change, other other than you know maybe he has a lot of faith in the script that he that he's got. They have a script already. Oh well, if it if it hasn't been written, then maybe they've at least chosen a writer. But the uh the the, the process now is just like coming up with the star, and there's been a few few of the movie sites have uh, been. Uh, drafting lists of uh, possible possible lead actresses. Um, do any of the ones that you've seen like really jump out to you though? I was thinking Rachel Keller the other day would be a good choice, but uh, I I'm always so wary of you know of fan casting these things because I always feel like the perfect girl who plays a perfect Batgirl has probably yet to be discovered. And so I mean. There are quite a few names that have been sort of uh, bandied around, but uh, even though the chances of her taking the role are uh, might be pretty thin, um, the I do like the idea of Britt Robertson in the role. She just has a, like she has the right vibe of like you know she can pull off the the action if she needs to, but she's also got a bit of a brainier kind of uh, vibe in some of her previous roles. So yeah, and I was just gonna say too, Joss Whedon has a reputation for crafting strong female characters. Which I kind of disagree with, but that's the rep he has. Um, and it'll be interesting to see where he takes this, because I don't know if you saw the the animated version of The Killing Joke. I But I think I know where you're going with it, yeah. Yeah, th- the part where Batgirl is basically like a side piece, she ends up having sex with Batman, which is like the oddest thing ever. Yep. And I think the whole treatment of her character turned a lot of people off. And maybe this is DC kind of going, well, you know what? We made a mistake, but here's also a chance to capitalize on the huge popularity of Batgirl. Um, oh, uh, Mackenzie Davis, I think, would be, you know, pretty solid choice. Oh, yeah. I'd love to see her break out with a big role like this. Yeah, exactly. Um, Jane Levy, some people have mentioned. I think she might be good. Uh, Micah Monroe, I know you're a fan. <laughs> She was really good in The Guest. I, I liked her in that. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, it could go so many different ways. I'm I'm always wary of casting a person in a role before we even know what that role entails because there's different interpretations of Batgirl. Absolutely. And the the version that they might go with, you know, it's it's going to be informed a little bit by what we've already seen in the in the DCEU, so it could be could she could be like an older version of Batgirl who um has been healed from her paralysis caused by the Joker. Yeah, she's got a tragic character history. Yeah, or maybe she's maybe they're going to be looking to uh, to cast a younger Batgirl uh, for the current version of Batman played by Ben Affleck, um, and uh, we won't we won't actually see the uh, incident with the Joker from the Killing Joke. Uh, yeah, I mean it's all possible. Um, it's actually I'm probably more excited for this project than Wonder Woman. Maybe because I already kind of heard that Wonder Woman isn't going to be good. But Batgirl, to me, has always been a much more interesting character. Yeah, and she does, uh, you know, if if they follow the general arc from the comics, um, she also kind of plays a, a bit of a unifying 
role in the larger universe. Yeah, she totally does. Yeah, she does. You know, if 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 they go the Oracle route, then she ends up being this kind of linchpin of the 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 Batman team and um you know, uh, you could see her doing cameos in some of the non-Batman DC films if they went that way. Yeah. So, and it's up to DC to not screw this up. Hopefully, they don't screw it up. I mean, what if what what happens if they decide to go in the direction of the the animated Killing Joke just for <laughs> just, just uh, to yeah, just I to mean, see like, like you know, hey, how gritty can we make this? That was such a horrific effort on so many levels, like. I watched it and I felt so dirty in a sense for watching it because I didn't enjoy it at all. And there are too many things in there that I that made me go like, why the hell would these characters do such things? It makes no sense. There's been that long time thing about how Batman takes these younger people under his wing to mentor them and uh, point them in the right direction but not to have sex yeah with them. i mean people joke about it or or you know there's fan fictions written about it but that, <laughs> yeah. that that stuff is for like the the dark corners of the internet i don't like to, to actually see it realized in a in a, in an official <laughs> a dc bit. product um it's uh it, it does make you kind of squirmy i think and um yeah the animation wasn't no they went with a pretty pretty cheap looking art style um, it was kind of a mix of anime and a mix of North American animation, but for for whatever reason, it just didn't work with the source material. Anyway, um, moving on to another casting choice. So I'm a huge, huge Michael Mann fan, as you know, and his newest project is going to be about Enzo Ferrari, which was going to be played by Christian Bale, but apparently has been replaced by Hugh Jackman. I, I remember when Michael Mann uh, when Michael Mann first. Uh... Uh, started talking about this project. I think it was about maybe about two years ago, and uh, and Christian Bale was was, was kind of uh, part of that uh, from the beginning. Like they uh, they they kind of wanted him to do it, but uh, he was he was concerned apparently that he couldn't gain enough weight to uh, convincingly play the character the way he wanted to play him. <laughs> and as we, which is funny. Because he grew so much for Batman Begins, like he was a he was a freaking fire hydrant in Batman Begins. And, but that's always been his thing, right? Like he's 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 one of those actors who feels that the body weight is a really important way to uh, sketch out the character. Well, just changing your physique, right? So apparently, he he didn't feel like doing this for the Ferrari movie was going to be safe. Um, uh, so now it's now he's kind of backed out, and Hugh Jackman's up. I mean, is Hugh Jackman a good fit for the role? I, he looks a little bit more like Benzo Ferrari than Christian Bale does. Why can't we find a fat Italian dude? Is it that hard? <laughs> and I don't think Hugh Jackman would, would like let himself go in the way that Christian Bale would. Well, I don't know. He's a pretty committed actor. I just, I don't know if they can pull off convincing Italians. Like, Enzo Ferrari is very Italian, right? Yeah, all the photos I've seen of him are, you know... Yeah, yeah, he's got the dark shades on. He's kind of round and pudgy. I'm always a little wary of actors playing um, people from other countries, but speak English and then and then use an accent to sort of um, cover up or just use an accent to signal where they're from. Because I feel like, you know what? Why can't they just speak Italian? Find some Italian dude and put some subtitles on the screen, you know? Like, I don't mind subtitles in movies at all. I know some people do, but it, it's just weird. Of course, that's falling on that um, that kind of intersection between the art and the finance, right? Because you can't sell a, an expensive biopic without a major star. Uh, that's part of Hollywood's problem too, yeah. But there are major stars with Italian heritage, so... Um, yeah, who's that guy who played the main character, Giuseppe, in A Beautiful Life? Roberto Benigni? Yeah, like, couldn't he play Enzo Ferrari? Like, he already kind of looks like him. <laughs> Would you believe Roberto Benigni as Enzo Ferrari? Like Enzo Ferrari is like famously kind of well, mercurial, more and, so uh, than Hugh Jackman or Christian Bale. Yeah, but Roberto Benigni is like a latter day Charlie Chaplin. Like he is, he's so he's so uh, uh, bright and like energetic and and uh, clown. Like he he's like a twenty first century clown and um, true, but and not in a bad way. But but he, I, I don't I don't think I, I don't even though he is Italian, I don't think I'd believe him. In, uh, as as much as I would like uh, North uh, like an American actor or something. But see, this is what they said about Jim Carrey too when he tried to go like for the serious dramas, and I thought he did a 
wonderful job. But pe- people just didn't take him seriously because the Jim Carrey they know is the Ace Ventura Jim Carrey. You know, the guy who like right. talks out of his butt. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So I don't think uh, the rest of the cast has really been filled out yet on this Ferrari film. So, um, no, no. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll be I'll be keeping an eye on this one, especially with the uh, with the background of like Christian Bale uh, being close to doing it, but then you know letting letting that letting that health thing be the decider is 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 pi- kind of compelling. Um, but uh, yeah, that about that about does it for uh, for the news in the, in this episode. So uh, we're gonna take a quick break, and when we come back, it'll be our uh, feature interview with our special guest Kate Wilkinson. Welcome back to the Extra Buttery Podcast. This week on the show, we've got a special guest. It's a friend of uh, Jason and myself. We went to school with her, a journalism school at Carleton in Ottawa. And she's here with a bit of a contentious point to argue. It's got to do with Quentin Tarantino and one of his films from his, the midpoint of his uh, filmography. And she's going to argue that this movie is actually the... What would you say, like the um, the least understood or the secret secret success of uh, of his oeuvre? Let me welcome Kate Wilkinson to the show. Here's Kate. How's it going? Hello, hello. What would we say? So this conversation came about because we go to movies a lot. As yep. well, you go to way more movies. You're you're the <laughs> you're the person that gets me out of the house going to movies more often than you know just waiting for them to come out on Netflix. So we were at. I don't know, one of our recent movie outings. And I had just come across an article that made me so angry because it was Quentin Tarantino talking about his his half of Grindhouse from back in 2007, which is Death Proof, starring Kurt Russell, Zoe Bell, people like Rosario Dawson. And he basically called it the worst movie he's ever made. Mm. And that made me so mad because I think it's one of the best movies that he's ever made. And so we kind of thought that that would be a fun topic yeah. to start to dive into. Absolutely. But like maybe uh, for, for the people who are listening who either, you know, they saw the movie a really long time ago, they can't remember it, or people uh, who just managed to, to miss it in some way. Uh, can you give us a quick little plot synopsis? A rundown? Yeah. Sure. Okay. So in Death Proof, so one thing to remember is that it's the back half of Grindhouse, which is the two-part exploitation film extravaganza that Quentin Tarantino directed with Robert Rodriguez. The back half is basically the story of this killer stuntman named Stuntman Mike, Mm. uh, played by Kurt Russell. The first half of the movie, we meet a group of awesome girls. Uh, We see Jungle Julia, Shanna, and I can't remember the third girl's name, played by Vanessa Ferlito, but they're basically played by Sidney Mm. Poitier, Jordan Ladd, and Vanessa Ferlito. Three girls hanging out in Austin, Texas, Um, But meanwhile, they're actually being stalked by the killer stuntman Mike in his old stuntman car. It's got a roll cage in it, a Mm. skull on the hood. And, you know, we know he's creepy from the outset, but we don't know exactly what he's capable of until Mm. halfway through the movie when he actually manages to murder a number of women, including Rose McGowan's character, with his car. So it kind of has elements of a slasher flick. And, you know, it's heartbreaking. We get to know these women really well, and then he kills them in a very brutal way. But in the second half of the movie, we meet another set of girls, a parallel sort of foursome. The fourth girl in the original group being uh, a character named Lena Frank, who's actually their weed dealer, (laughs) meets them at Guero's bar later on. But, um, yeah, we meet four new women, awesome actresses. Mary Elizabeth Winstead is playing an actress, actually, who's starring as a cheerleader. I love Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Um, The other person is Tracy Toms, who a lot of people know from Rent. We've got Rosario Dawson, who plays Abby, and we've got Zoe Bell, who plays herself as a stunt woman. And basically, the four friends are all working on a movie set together in Tennessee. Mm. So Abby is a makeup artist. Um, Tracy, who plays Kim, and Zoe are both stunt women. And Mary Elizabeth Winstead, as I said, is playing a cheerleader. It turns out that Zoe and Kim, not only are they stunt women, but they're also stunt movie enthusiasts. 
uh, and they refer to this classic 1970s stunt movie called Vanishing Point. Zoe's in America, and she's actually taken out a print subscription to a local newspaper, Mm -hmm. um, and she finds that there's a 1970 white Dodge Charger for sale (laughs) in the area because she's been looking at the classifieds. So the girls go to this farm where there's a super creepy farmer, and they... Basically, by leaving Lee, the cheerleader, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, behind, are able to convince this guy to let them take the uh, the car out for a test drive, is what they tell him. Right. Um, it turns out that what Zoe and Kim really want to do, Abby's not really sure what's happening until it's happening, is play a game called Ship's Mast, which basically means that Zoe Bell, from what I understand, she did all of these stunts, which is freaking bananas. Mm. Like, yeah. she is holding two belts, which has, like, gloves on, and she's riding on the hood of a car. At, like, top speed. Yeah. <laughs> and that is when stuntman Mike finds the girls and starts to wreak havoc with them as well. And the three women decide to get vengeance on stuntman mm-hmm. Mike. As a young I think I was 18 when I saw this movie. I had just recently got into Quentin Tarantino because of a boyfriend at the time, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, he'd been showing me all of Tarantino's movies. I was, like, a new Tarantino fan. And basically, I just thought this was one of the greatest things I've ever seen. In, in saying it's the worst movie he ever made, Tarantino doesn't realize how important it was to put characters like this on screen. There's a reason why Bella in Twilight is such a disappointing heroine mm. and why Katniss Everdeen isn't. You know, when you have women who have full lives, who talk about things other than men and their relationships with men, which is what the women in Death Proof do throughout the movie. It's still, so many movies don't pass the Bechdel test, and this one does, and it's freaking awesome. It's got all the classic Tarantino elements, like so much dialogue, Mm. so many pop culture references. Uh, The women are awesome, just like Uma Thurman and Kill Bill and Daryl Hannah. You know, it's just such an important part of his canon, and for him to dismiss it, like he did. Do you do you remember uh, what he said about the movie when he when he kind of dissed it? Because I think you were explaining it to me. Yeah. Well, um, it was just that you know he he had done this he had done this Hollywood Reporter uh, roundtable, and he started talking about. Um, other directors who had had really strong careers, but then they had, uh, for one reason or another, they put out a movie that really wasn't that great. And it, uh, in his view, that one bad film really negatively impacted their their reputations. So, so he's worried that Death Proof is like that for him, where where. But he'd... what's ironic is that the interview we're talking about is 2012. The Django Unchained came out in 2012. Yeah. So he doesn't think that Django Unchained is his worst movie because it is. (laughs) It is. It's funny because a lot of people love Django Unchained. I really didn't. And I was trying to, for a long time, I was trying to figure out exactly why I hated it so much. To me, it just wasn't, it wasn't enough, you know. There was a lot of buildup, especially after Inglorious Bastards. Like, he went for it, you know. He Mm. killed Hitler in Inglorious Bastards. I, if you're going to go back and rewrite slavery, you need to do it big. Yeah. And for me, you know, one plantation, I'm, if you're going to go back and rewrite history, I want the whole freaking Confederacy, like, burned yeah. to the ground. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't just want one plantation going up in smoke. Having read some really great posts about it, Jesse Williams, if you've ever, he has this insanely long blog post about it from, wait, I think it was like 2013 or 2014, he must have posted oh, okay. it, and it's like a scene-by-scene takedown of why the imagery of Django Unchained is so wrong, and a lot of it comes down to the fact that he, you know, he made Django a really, a weirdly comical character, and it was inappropriate, you know, it had to be more than that, and the person who really kind of solidified my viewpoint after I read her work is there's a film blogger by the name of Eileen Jones. I read her post about getting excited about the fact that Django Unchained was coming out and then just the utter disappointment mm-hmm. after she saw the film. And that really, her opinion really influenced my own uh, right. when it came to deciding if I liked that, that film or not. So if you have a chance to check out Eileen Jones or Jesse Williams or any of the other great essays about Django Unchained, I think you too will be convinced as to why that's not his best movie. Definitely, I think it's his worst movie. And so Mm. when put in the context of his canon, Death Proof is by far not the worst one. Like, he's made other bad films. Not to mention that his section of Four Rooms is horrendous. Yeah, and I've never even seen that that, uh, contribution. We won't even Um, get into that one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, it's his. I don't know what sort of headspace he was in when he was giving that that roundtable. He yeah. was also he was also probably a little bit fired up because if I <laughs> if I remember correctly, he was also launching into this one of his key talking points or the thing that he always returns to is how terrible digital cinema is compared to movies shot on film. Like this on is his cellular. constant crusade: yeah. is film versus digital. Yeah, and to an extent, I can sort of I sort of see where he's coming from because. You know, he he did actually put up the money, and I think he still operates the famous New Beverly Theater in Los Angeles. Um, so he's kind of he's kept that little bit of movie history alive. But he's always talking in, in interviews or these roundtable type gatherings about how digital cinema is inherently worse than celluloid. It, that somehow it's TV in public. You know, it's <laughs> and the, he doesn't like TV. Yeah, I'm assuming he doesn't like apparently. <laughs> Uh, has he not heard of peak TV? Like, what's going <laughs> We're on? We're in the golden age of television, exactly. Quentin. Yeah. Um, now, uh. he, he, might, uh, he might be unfairly lumping in, like, all of the big superhero blockbuster uh, franchise movies in that, like, in his takedown of digital cinema. That may be why he's so angry about it. Hey, if, you know, the Green Lantern, not good. Yeah. We know. <laughs> yeah. But I think he he's, he's sort of romanticizing something that... Uh, doesn't doesn't really need to be romanticized in quite quite the uh, amount that he does. Like he, well, and you know we know how much he loves nostalgia. Um, what I remember correctly about Grindhouse from the time it was released is the the press tour that they went on. They had to do a lot of explanation for mm. mo- for audiences like modern audiences who just couldn't understand why someone would put the mistakes back in. Right. And you know Tarantino, it's it's funny that he likes sort of anachronisms and and old ways of doing things because as a filmmaker, I wonder if he would be as popular as he is without the internet. The fact that rewatching a Tarantino film is just as fun as watching it for the first time because yeah. of all the references and the fact that you can pick things apart and there's fan chat, you know, yeah. areas like on IMDb and like the, you know, the trivia section of IMDb where fan and, and Rotten Tomatoes where fans just get to you know, talk back and forth about, did you catch this reference? Like, yep. here, here's a full guide to all the references in exactly. Tarantino movies. They're so much more fun on rewatching. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's funny that someone who likes and, and preaches so much about old ways of making movies, I think, is pretty reliant on the internet for his fan base because that's yeah. really where I think a love for Tarantino develops is when you're able to, you know, be part of a, a community that, that talks about his stuff and and explains it to each other and it's funny though like i i just don't agree that film is more beautiful i mean surely the revenant was shot on digital yeah i think i think it was yeah yeah how can you say a beautiful movie like that isn't comparable to things that have been put on film exactly and and in that case uh, alejandro inaritu not only did he shoot on digital but i'm almost positive that uh, it was shot chronologically Whoa! So he uh, like if he's like ca- a stickler for yeah. If the characters just had to like backtrack through a particular part of the location multiple days later, then that's what he would do. You know, where uh, whereas traditional productions will uh, group everything uh, by based scene. on by scene, trying to get everything in a particular location and then moving on. Inaritu wanted to spend the money and uh, cart the equipment and do everything in, in the midst of like a Canadian winter. Well, that movie got really delayed and expensive, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But that was that was him committing to it, and for Tarantino to imply that somehow that effort on the part of a director like in Inaritu is less cinematic or less legitimate because uh, he might have used more modern shooting techniques, that kind of rubs me the wrong way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, like, and, come on, man. Yeah. You're not the only one who has claim to legitimate director status exactly yeah 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 but i mean that's not to say i don't love you quentin because i do <laughs> <laughs> i just need you to stop putting down death proof <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh do you feel that despite the fact that he he has so many strong women in his movies that occasionally he goes too far and it ends up being like a fetish of his and that somehow that might that might undercut what he's trying to do by having a strong female character well, I mean, in Death Proof, don't get me wrong, there is a lot of a lot of a disembodied feet and legs. Um, like you can definitely tell that the guy has put his uh, love of that part of the female anatomy out there. Like the yeah. when the movie opens, there's a pair of uh, female feet in flip flops, like tapping on the dashboard, right. and the the titles go up. Um, 
Jungle Julia's leg is literally severed from her and it gets like its own shot when it falls on the pavement during the grotesque scene. Uh, but you know what's interesting is that Stuntman Mike also has a foot fetish. Mm. He goes after Rosario Dawson's feet in his first kind of meeting right. uh, of the girls. She doesn't know it's him, or but it, but it does creep her out. Or she knows it's him, but she doesn't know that he like has been like licking her feet essentially. Oh, okay. Which is, yeah. You know, it's super gross. There's hints throughout the movie that stuntman Mike A isn't like attractive to women. Is is mm. B very insecure about it? Rose McGowan's character, you know. I think the whole reason, well, maybe not the whole reason, I think he was going to kill her anyway, but I think he especially enjoyed it because she told all the girls at the bar that she wasn't going to sleep with him, and she and he overheard it. So it's interesting that, yeah, Quentin Tarantino definitely has his fetishes, feet all over the place, ankles all over the place, you know, kill Bill, trying to get her feet to work, that kind of thing. Yeah. But in a weird way, he kind of puts those on screen and then kills the character who has the same fetishes. Yeah, Which, that's true. I don't know if that's some sort of symbol that he's putting right. out there. I suppose uh, maybe he does it under the guise of it being uh, based on exploitation narrative. There's still a lot of really important stuff happening, though, in the back half of, of Death Proof, you know, where you have uh, fully realized female characters having full conversations, you know, strong women having relationships and a friendship beyond uh, beyond just their relationships with men like there's a little bit of like boy talk who they're dating that kind of thing right but you know there's there's a lot more about female friendship itself i think it was uh it was an interview that he was doing on late night with uh conan where he said that he if he's going to be hanging on a group of people it's usually with women and i think that you know, if that's the case, I think that that's had a positive impact on his filmmaking in the case of Death Proof, because the conversations are very natural between the women. You know, they tease mm-hmm. each other, you know, they, they make fun of each other, they they tell stories, they mm-hmm. reminisce, they have adventures, they have plans, and it's not always revolving around the men in their lives. Right. You know, we don't even find out until partway through the movie that Abby is a mom, and the, the guy, you know, the father isn't around, mom, but, like, Abby's a single mom, that kind of thing. I, I don't know. There's just some very, like, realistic characters in Death Proof that, for me, kind of makes up for the fact that there's some fetishization happening. Right. Um, well, because not to the, cancel it out, but... Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. Well, and that's that's why I think it's it's a little bit ironic that, um, you know, he, he likes to make these movies in the style of the exploitation genre, which... In its more in its cruder formats back in the seventies when it was really popular, it that genre was fueled by women in revealing clothing, you know, getting getting knocked around, just being depicted as objects. It is interesting how in his version of that, he starts he kind of uses that as fuel, but then he takes it a little bit further and develops it into something weirdly like empowering. Well, I, I think it's, I don't know, empowering is such a loaded word these days because everyone's is, yeah. using it, but I think it's feminist. Mm. Um, and maybe those two things are interchangeable in a lot of people's minds. I don't know. It's, it's a word that's been so, like, bastardized by, yeah. <laughs> yeah. by marketing that it's hard to know what's what empowerment really is anymore. Zack Snyder's sucker punch, for example. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she is not empowering whatsoever. Um, yeah, and the other interesting thing is these women make a big deal of not being dependent on men. Even the even the women in the first half of the movie, Jungle Julia, you know, makes a point of the fact that like you know the guys that they've been hanging out with recently, she's not going to get her weed from them. She's going to get it from a female weed dealer friend because right. she doesn't want to be dependent on these guys all night. She doesn't want them following him around. Right. They ultimately decide not to take the boys up with them to the lake house. Mm. You know, it's a girls' weekend. I think to really make the point of why Stuntman Mike deserves it in the end, you need the first half of the movie mm. where he manages to do something truly horrible to five women. It makes it really feel like he deserves it when he gets the shit kicked out of him yeah. by, by the second half of Girls. Yeah. So Can I also say that their wardrobe, totally normal and natural, and I don't see it exploitative at all. Those, those outfits for all the women, I think, were totally normal. Yeah. Yeah. The interesting thing about the fact that, that you've decided to sort of defend Death Proof and or maybe rise it up above his own appraisal of it is that I think a lot of people have, especially since his most recent movie, The Hateful Eight, came out, there's been some people kind of uh, taking another look over Tarantino and maybe thinking that he's going too far or that he's overstating some of the things that 
maybe were better balanced around the time that he made Death Proof or Inglorious Bastards or maybe even a little bit further back to Kill Bill. You haven't seen The, the Hateful Eight. I haven't. Yeah, we talked is, about this before. Yeah, so. I I disliked Django Unchained so much that when I saw he was coming out with another Western, I was like, oh, yeah. not again. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can't deal with this again. <laughs> and then the but there's this scene in The Hateful Eight uh, towards the end. It's the big climactic shootout uh, and... The violence in that, or the the extremity of the violence, probably, I, in my opinion, it goes a, a, like it's probably twice as bad as the final scene in Django Unchained. Just the, the sheer level of like this this character's head it completely explodes. Um, bits of brain and skull and blood just go all over this other person. She's the this character uh, gets coated in it. Her teeth have already been knocked out in an earlier scene. And meanwhile, she's uh, she's just cackling like she's possessed by some sort of demon. And the movie plays this up for some sort of shock value. It's like, look at this. Like, look how crazy these people are. But I ended up feeling like by that point, I've been kind of dead into it. Mm-hmm. And I it didn't have the, the effect that he probably wanted it to have. It, it is funny to think that the feminism, I mean, if, the, if, if you got a female character who's getting more than she deserves mm. in uh, Hateful Eight. I wonder if there's like a happy accident happening with Death Proof. Like, mm. yeah. <laughs> does he even know the symbolism? I think he was trying to do a whole lot in Django Unchained with symbolism and politics and, um, you know, an anti-slavery message. But I think whether he meant to or not, if a viewer like me can find importance in it, I don't know. I, I think that it was just a really interesting message that he gave to all the young women who would have seen that movie around that time. Yeah. And is that, it, you know, is that like, something you would... Uh... It made me expect more of female heroines. It's oh. why, I, I think coming back to an earlier point, it's why Bella in Twilight was so disappointing. Mm. It came out after, you know, I, I think Katniss Everdeen was like an expectation. All we were really getting around that time was like, you know, I was thinking, like, why can't a woman be in the Born Identity? We were getting, like, that shitty movie Salt starring Angelina Jolie. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, there was just not enough in terms of female action yeah. uh, characters. And so, you know, those I think they're still rare. When you think about a big marquee movie, yeah, uh, a movie like that I think is still important. You might find better relationship, a better female relationship depiction in independent mm. movies, but when it comes to something that's big on screen, it's still rare to get those kinds of female friendships yeah. depicted and, they, and portrayed. And females as uh, action heroines. Yeah, you know, like, yeah. Zoe Bell, like, yeah. Ugh, why doesn't that woman have her own franchise? Yeah, and Seriously. well, you think about... Uh, as she possible. can actually do the stuff. Yeah, exactly. She Vin can Diesel can't do, do the stuff, <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> but maybe, maybe, maybe what was happening in Death Proof was actually like a really early prototype of what we've been seeing just as recently as like 2015 with uh, Charlize Theron in Mad Max Fury oh, Road. Yeah. Because what she does in that, uh, a lot of those stunts are actually her like hanging off of uh, a giant big rig while it's trucking through the Namibian desert while mm-hmm. they're, they're shooting this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's really her. And actually, she's coming out with a movie in August called Atomic Blonde. And it's set... I if, already love it. If you haven't seen, it, <laughs> if you haven't seen the trailer for this, we have to look at it okay. and finish recording because... And just to, so that we avoid disappointment, she's not replacing an Asian character the way Scarlett no. Johansson is. Okay, right? No, yeah. nothing like that. When I saw that trailer, I was like, I feel like it's weird that she's the only white lady in this yeah. whole thing. yeah. <laughs> So, Maybe this was supposed to be an Asian character. <laughs> <laughs> I think this one, Atomic Blonde, is it's a Cold War spy thriller. Oh. But it's, if I'm not mistaken, some of the producers of John Wick are involved. Oh, I'm on board. And Charlize Theron plays this British MI6 agent who's sent over to Cold War East Germany right as just in the basically the months leading up to the Berlin Wall falling. And she's got to pull off this crazy difficult mission, and of course she gets uh, she gets mixed up in some of the most insane looking fight sequences I've seen all year in a trailer, and she's doing it all herself, including I think the trailer opens up with a full one minute long take of Charlize Theron just mowing through these guys completely hand to hand, not even with any like guns or anything, improvised weapons. It's like uh, it's like Born Identity meets John Wick, meets Death Proof, essentially. 
And that it, is what we've been waiting for. Yes, yeah. So, and the movie's coming out in August. It just, uh, it just had its premiere at South by Southwest last week. How did the reviews go? The reviews were apparently like through the roof. Oh. People, people were saying it's, it's gonna, it's gonna blow everyone's socks off when, oh, it, when it comes I out this summer. It. Um, and I'm super excited for yeah, it. You know, there's, 100% there's, a, there's a couple of cool things that came out of South by Southwest, but this is probably the top one for me, especially after, uh, what Theron did in, uh, in, in Mad Max. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. So, oh, that's amazing. And I, I, it would be really interesting, I think, to do, uh, to maybe like even do a retrospective of like looking at Death Proof and then doing a close comparison with Atomic Blonde when it yeah, comes out. Yeah, 100%. Kind of trying to see what... And maybe that's maybe that can be like a guest a return guest appearance for you. you we'll, uh, we'll make sure we'll make sure you, you know, we go to see it. And the then, return of Kate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we'll see uh, we'll see that happen because uh, maybe we have turned a corner. I don't know in the in the industry where. Oh, granted, it's we're still turning that corner incredibly slowly. Yeah. But you, there we're are these. A wheel. You know, <laughs> but there are these little these big movies that are breaking through with women in the in the lead roles, and you know, and it's women who are taking names and throwing people down flights of stairs. So it's, you know, that's that's kind of an exciting, exciting thing to see. I love it. I love it. You know, what's funny is um, one of my closet loves is the uh, Fast and the Furious franchise, mm-hmm. which your co-host is also a huge fan of. He is, yeah. And that franchise, I would say, had some of the, the first, like, regularly employed franchise female action yeah. stars in Michelle it. Michelle Rodriguez you know? and um, Gal, Gal Gadot, Gadot before she was Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman. Yeah. Um, R.I.P. that character and <laughs> Han. Um, <laughs> I loved both of them so yeah. much. And then who was the UFC fighter? Oh, who, Ronda Rousey. Uh, no, she went on. She was also in X-Men. Oh, uh, Gina Carano. Yes. Yeah. Was also in Fast. She was in Fast 6, I want to say. Yeah, and she was in Deadpool. Yeah. Oh, um, Deadpool is what I'm thinking. Yeah. But was she also an X-Men character? She was playing like a villain character. In X-Men? Uh, uh, well, the Deadpool is technically in the X-Men universe. Right, uh, okay. Even though, like, the, you this... can tell I'm not a Marvel slash DC <laughs> expert. I'm like, who's where, what? No, no, nobody blames you because <laughs> okay. the, the weird relationship of like who owns the rights to which properties still confuses pretty oh, much everyone. Oh, God, okay. Um, so that, you know, setting that aside. But Gina Carano has been, you know, I, I don't know if she's still in MMA now, um, mm-hmm. but... She kind of she burst onto the scene with a with a little movie called Haywire. I think I think that came out in 2011, and it had a surprisingly great cast. It was uh, it had Ewan McGregor, Michael Fassbender, and it was directed by Steven Soderbergh. Awesome! Uh, it was one of like these this uh, a quick like a quick little movie that he did. Um, I think that year because he was planning to go on retirement for a little while, and he wanted to like get this get this concept out the door. And Gina Carano. I think wowed a lot of people because no one thought that she could carry a movie entirely by herself. Granted, she had a little bit of trouble with some of the dialogue. She didn't really sell the the talky scenes. Uh, but when she was doing the action stuff, you were like, you were stuck on watching her like dominate the frame. Bringing it full circle, Charlize Theron also going to be in Fate and Furious. Oh yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. as the uh, car controlling tech lady. <laughs> Whatever's happening in that trailer. With the strange dreadlocks. With the strange dreadlocks, which yeah. she's definitely going to get shit for because yeah. white people need to stop wearing dreadlocks. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and uh, looking a little bit towards the, the TV side of things too, uh, we are seeing some uh, some interesting female characters on Iron Fist. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Iron Fist has a whole raft of problems. Jason and I have talked about that in the previous episode. Okay. But most of those problems have to do with the lead character and how kind of petulant and annoying he is. <laughs> and actually, the the fight scenes in that, even though it's a show entirely based around martial arts, the fight scenes actually take a big drop-off in quality compared to Daredevil, which has truly, truly amazing. Jessica Jones is yeah. also amazing. Exactly. Yeah. So they, it seems like Marvel, Marvel is actually doing a better job with their female characters in their Netflix TV series. That's definitely one Marvel franchise I got 100% behind. Yeah. Jessica Jones. Actually, we should really give Jessica Jones a shout out for being an awesome uh, female heroine. Yeah. Like, yeah. super cool, super real. Complicated. Complicated. Yeah. Three-dimensional human being. That's all we're asking for, <laughs> you know? We just want women to be three-dimensional, exactly. along with the boys. But now, maybe it's like a final little word on Death Proof. Is there something, uh, if like, if you were to find someone who, you know, they weren't super experienced with Tarantino movies, and you were recommending Death Proof to them, what would you ask them to, to really look for the first time they watch it to get the most out of it? 
Well, I definitely wouldn't do it again to our friend Jenna, who is not a fan of violent movies. <laughs> I made yeah. her watch Death Proof with it. So first of all, I would make sure they're actually into action movies and can handle right. blood. Because uh, that was the first mistake I made. She's, just, like, super feminist. So I was like, you're going to love Death Proof. And she yeah. was horrified. <laughs> she was like, never, I'm never watching a movie with you ever again. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'd say, like, all eyes on Zoe Bell. I would tell them, mm-hmm. when you watch Zoe Bell, that woman is legit. She's literally doing the things that you see on screen. Mm-hmm. So, respect. And I would tell them to watch for the ways in which the, the women interact with each other. You're going to find it to be super naturalistic. And you know what? Kudos to, to Kurt Russell because he plays to a hilarious extent and a, and a super scary extent a really good insecure man. Mm. Like he is not afraid to be extremely flawed on camera. You know, like his character is awkward. He's weird. Yeah. He's comical in the end. You know, at the at the end when they're pulling him out of the car and he's crying for his mother, pretty much. Mm. You know, the bloody arm and stuff. He is. You know, you just love to hate that guy. And you also weirdly feel bad for him sometimes because he's clearly been, he's clearly developed some sort of inferiority complex. And, Mm. you know, he's going through his movies at the bar with Rose McGowan's character, um, or his television shows that he worked on. No one knows what he ever worked on. He was 30 feet from stardom, basically. Yeah. And he's he's washed up and he's insecure. Yeah. I would also look for that brilliant performance because he's the one killer in an exploitation movie that I think also comes out as, as very well-rounded and justifiably dead at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> so what I think we need you to do is we need to get you in the same room as Tarantino and we need to sit you two down and you need to like, first of all, we need to find a way to make him stop talking because he has a habit of talking uh, over. He has a habit of, yeah, something, I don't know. Just like make him take you seriously and it just have you like, have you set him straight because I think he's, he's off on a little bit of a weird filmmaking yeah. tangent right now. Like, Quentin, you have got to stop calling Death Proof your worst movie ever made. Yeah. It's not, by a long shot. <laughs> Django is. <laughs> and and you really have to recognize what you might have accidentally done without realizing it with Death Proof, which was yeah. create a kick-ass movie with kick-ass women that was inspirational for at least one 18-year-old girl who was watching it in the movie theater when she was with her boyfriend at the time. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's a great way to close it out. I hope that a few people listening to this will uh, <laughs> will take your advice and maybe reevaluate their ranking of Tarantino movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. Yeah. I hope I can come back. Absolutely. And hey to Jay. Yeah. I'm <laughs> way over in Vancouver. Miss you, buddy. All, All right. right. <laughs> Yay, Kate. Yay, transition. Um, so, Rob, I was creeping you on Letterboxd the other day, and I saw that you gave Gangs of New York, which is one of my top 20, top 50 favorite films, and you gave it four and a half stars out of five. And I'm just a yes. little curious why it wasn't a five-star film for you. Like, what was missing? What was lacking? What didn't you like? Yeah, I mean, I... I so I struggled with my rating on this one more than I expected um, because, you know, just just for the sake of, sake of context, you know, I'm, I'm generally pretty receptive to uh, Martin Scorsese. Like I, I like pretty much I like pretty much everything he's done. Um, Were you going up or lower? I, I think I when I first logged it on Letterboxd, I started at about four and a half where it currently is. And then I thought about it a bit more and I'm like, did I really like it that much? And I knocked <laughs> it back to a four. Uh-huh. But then I changed it again. I was like, no, I actually did like it a little bit more. It's tough, eh? So four and a, and I stayed at four and a half. And I think some of the some of the reasoning I had was that you know first and foremost the, he shot it on at the Cinecita Studios in Rome and put so much detail into the production design. Yes, like it's, yes, production design is incredible. Like there the. At no point in that film do you feel like you're looking at stuff that was shot on a set. Like you'd swear that they that they came across some sort of abandoned mid nineteenth century village somewhere that had been perfectly preserved, and they just uh, were able to shoot there. Um, so that immersion is is pretty important. Um, but I think what one thing about it was that it's it's got that classic Scorsese length. 
you know, that epic. Yeah, it's like, overly long. Yeah. That epic two and a half hour thing, which sometimes like it, sometimes it works for him and other times you feel like he's he's having an issue killing his babies to use the <laughs> to use the, the industry <laughs> phrase, you know, and yeah, and yeah. separating himself from like the scenes that don't don't really need to be there. Because I think there are quite a few. And the, I think the other thing that even though DiCaprio is, is overall pretty good in the role, I wasn't super convinced by his progression to being the revolutionary or the, the the rebel against the norm that that he eventually becomes like he you know he seems so comfortable as Daniel Day Lewis's second in command for so long and then almost out of nowhere in that big party scene at about the the two hour mark he finally you know goes ahead with his uh, his assassination plot and is stopped um, and then you know, there's some transitions and stuff and like the Cameron Diaz character is nursing him back to health and all this stuff. And then the next time we see him, he's like a committed, you know, he's dedicated against against Daniel Day-Lewis's gang and uh, building up a body of support behind him, you know? Yeah, it's definitely not Leo's best work, but Daniel Day-Lewis on the other hand, oh my God, he's amazing, huh? Oh yeah, yeah. Like I think the just the amount of the amount of craft that that he puts into his role that I think that's what made me bring it back up to a four and 4.5 from the four after I kind of uh, I waffled on it a bit this is kind of like Heath Ledger in the Dark Knight where really one performance elevates the entire film mm-hmm. because I'm like you like I really like Gangs of New York and I gave it four out of five but there were the love triangle subplot I just didn't buy and I don't care for it and I thought Cameron Diaz was probably the weakest link in of the three leads. Um, the other thing was too, like I'm with you, like this is not Leo's best work, and I don't think Amsterdam Valen, the guy he plays, is a fully fleshed out character. There's some things he does that seem sort of convenient, like it, it just it, he does it just to move the movie further along. He almost feels like a. Um like a patchwork character of like multiple historical people. Like he doesn't, he doesn't feel like his own guy. But again, the production value is excellent because it ties into this whole um, history and era of New York that I think had been previously forgotten. Um, But I was also curious, um, you know, the first big fight scene between with Liam Neeson and Daniel Day Lewis, did you find the editing in that really hard to follow? I did, and it was it, it was editing like the film was cut by uh, Thelma Schumacher, who's been Scorsese's go-to editor for decades now. Um, but the editing that she, that she used in that sequence, it felt like the kind of editing that from like a a much younger filmmaker, like a more experimental kind of cutting, almost like what D- David O. Russell was doing in Three Kings, like these these like uh, f- super fast motion uh, sequences with uh, rapid fire cuts and uh, like shaky cam. I think Ridley Scott had the same problem too. Yeah, and it, it, it felt out of like out of character for Scorsese. I mean, not not to say that he should stick with a particular look and feel every time he makes a movie. No, but the film has a lot of wide shots, a lot of pans, a lot of static camera movement. And so the, the beginning really throws you into it, but uh, like upon multiple viewings, kind of doesn't fit with the rest of the film yeah yeah i'd agree with that yeah and the ending too i hate how the ending brought you to the present you know that lasting shot and they had that u2 soundtrack and they showed you how like the weeds and all this other stuff had kind of grown and covered the graves and they're kind of like this lost generation of americans i don't know how i feel about that i always felt that it was a little cliched a little too mainstream if you call it that do you think that's the influence of uh, of Harvey Weinstein? Because uh, he maybe that there there's a lot of rumors and and speculation about uh, Weinstein and Scorsese's relationship when they were making that film, and some <laughs> some people have blown it. Some people have blown it up to be more than it probably was. They made it like some at the time there were accounts of like how they were screaming at each other in the edit suite, and uh, they couldn't agree on a cut, and then they kind of smooth things over and in later interviews suggested that they were, you know, they were best friends. Um, but it, uh, it does like, it is made like the ending is mainstream enough that it, it almost feels like something that Weinstein came along and said like, Hey, we gotta, we gotta make sure that those middle Americans that, that I care so much about will, will actually get what you're saying with this, uh, this fast forward to the present. 
because it was such a self-contained story, right? It was about Amsterdam Valen coming into his own as a man and then avenging his dad, which, I mean, spoiler alert, he eventually does. But at the same time, um, it really branched out in sort of like four or five different directions. It, it goes into a lot of stuff with the Tammany Hall um, segments, you know, the the Jim Broadbank character, who's this corrupt local politician, and uh, getting Brennan Gleeson's character elected to be the sheriff to represent the the Irish vote. It it built, and those were like they were segments that that weren't out of place, but they also really did contribute to the runtime. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to get your thoughts on it because it's between that and there will be blood. I think Daniel Day Lewis already clinches like the title of best actor of our generation. <laughs> and we'll have to see now what uh, what he's going to uh, bring to this new collaboration with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. Yes. Um, I think he's the playing diva. Uh, or or like he a guy who works in the um the clothing industry in 1950s London which uh you know those those two together with with a topic that probably hasn't been uh, uh featured in movies all that much, you know, that that could be pretty Pretty cool stuff. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I think that's all the time we have for this one, Rob. Yeah, yeah, we've uh, we covered a lot of ground, and uh, hopefully we'll get. To, uh, we have. <laughs> there's a lot of news, and uh, it was good to sit down with Kate for that uh, that big discussion about Death Proof, and hoping to have uh, some more special guests on the show uh, in the coming episodes. Uh, but until the next episode, my name is Robert Snow in Toronto. And I'm Jason Chen in Vancouver. Uh, be sure to check out kinetoscope.ca for more film and TV. And we'll talk to you next time.